Hello and welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by Caliber Mind. Our goal on the RMR is to help marketers get a little more strategic. Today I'm joined by Alicia Conlin. Alicia, thanks so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, hello, thank you for having me. Well, the long story short is that I run a post-click agency and that has been based on running 450 different landing pages, funnels, offers. I've seen it all, everything from Brazilian butt lift doctors, billion dollar tech companies, mum and dad pop shops, and now we help companies to make sure that they're building, building really, really solid foundations for their marketing growth. I'm going to try to not spiral into the plastic surgery piece, (laughs) but I love this because speaking of clicks, uh, we kind of came up with a clickbait worthy topic. And the big question is, do you need a funnel? So despite the subject line, what do you think? Do you need a funnel? Well, I hope so. Otherwise I wouldn't be in business. But (laughs) the reason I think we came up with this is that I was telling you about, I had a sales call and somebody said to me, oh, well, you know, why do I even need a funnel? And I said something. And then after the call, I was like, why did that question bug me? And it bugged me because ultimately a funnel is not optional. If you have a business, you have a funnel. A funnel is just every single touch point that somebody has with your company. And I think because of the popularity and the coining almost of the term by Russell Brunson with his click funnels and the one funnel away, a lot of people equate the term funnel with like that sort of scammy internet marketery kind of environment, but it's not a funnel or you can call it your acquisition machine or whatever it is. It's just every single touch point that happens in the buyer journey, but also in the customer's journey when you're trying to build out the LTV as well. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a knee jerk reaction in response to moving everything to digital and expecting that everything can be measured. And I understand that as a marketer, however, going to the opposite extreme helps no one. So for example, uh, when we talk about nailing the basics, one of those basics is making sure your lead form goes somewhere. Am I the only one who's been a consultant and seen the lead form go nowhere? Oh my gosh. The amount of times we've been brought on for like CRO where it's like, Oh, please help us. And we always do. We always check that first. We always check the messaging, the tech, like we go into the data. That's the first thing. Cause in our like decision tree of troubleshooting, you always start with what's hypothetically the easiest. If there's any developers listening, they're probably rolling their eyes thinking that is not the easiest thing to check, but page speed, does the form submit? Where does it go? Are you your emails ending up in spam. There's a lot of super, super basics that if you tweak those, they would improve your conversions straight away. Oh gosh. And there's so many things that added a digital presence is so important. I've seen websites where www doesn't have the security certificate and isn't secure. I've seen forms that go nowhere and they're just stored on the website. I, I, I've seen a lot and I'm sure you have too. In your mind, what are the basics that every business, no matter what the size need to get right? Yeah. And to, to add to that, I think that a lot of people because our brains tend to overcomplicate things and they want it to be sexy and they want it to be this like crazy solution that is going to save the day. And so when we're working with clients, we won't even talk about CRO, so conversion rate optimization, until they have these foundations because the whole premise of conversion rate optimization, emphasis on the optimization, is you have something working. So you need the foundations for scalable growth to build upon that and to make it better. So what those four 
foundations are that we really focus on is your target market and getting obsessed with them in their words. How do they describe their pain points, their hopes, their dreams, their fears? And ultimately, what's the dream outcome you're pushing here? Because nobody sells a product or a service, right? We all just sell entry into that desired after state. And a lot of people forget that, especially in SaaS, especially in SaaS. Like, oh, this product and its features, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no one cares. <laughs> like, what, what is the dream outcome? So that's pillar number one. Number two is the positioning. And it's been coined before, so we didn't make this up, but that radical positioning. So how do you stand out from the noise? And how do you not just become, especially in B2B, just another piece of like information in that war for attention? So a lot of businesses are scared to stand out. They copy their competitors and they just want to stay they just want to stay like status quo. But the thing that stands out from a persuasion and a psychology point of view, or the thing that gets results is what does stand out. So how can you create positioning? And that comes from understanding your target market. The next one is the messaging, also part of cutting through. And finally, we have what we call a golden hippo offer. So instead of going out to market with get a quote, chat with us, or even more of a cardinal sin, not even having a call to action or a good offer, we help people to create an offer that gets people excited to get on the phone with the sales team and actually brings in inbound leads because you're coming from a place of value and authority instead of desperateness basically. <laughs> so those are the, those are the foundations people need. And I think I'm hearing a lot of things that align with some of the psychology principles that I've heard about selling and buying. And that is people start with an emotional decision, something that resonates with their emotional impacts, and then they rationalize it. So not as graceful a segue as I would wish, but very related. You started your career in sales. How do you think that's informed you as a marketer? Yes. So I've done lots of fun sales things. I did cold calling. That was my first job out of high school was in a call center. I was pretty good at it actually. And it was really fun. And then I've done telco sales, uh, hi-fi sales, agency sales. I worked in an agency where I had to come up with my own ebook and then market it. Then I had to call those leads and appointment, set my own appointments. Then I had to book those in. Then I was the account manager. Then I ran the Facebook ads. So Anyway, I've done a lot of sales and I do sales for our own company. And what I find is that marketers that have never done sales, that's where the disconnect starts to happen with why are you marketing? What is the point of your marketing? The point of your marketing is one, to serve the business and the business's objective, but it's to create scalable, predictable growth for that company. And how do you do that? You do that by, if you're lead gen, generating highly qualified leads. And just, I think, having that appreciation of sales, because sales is such an ugly word, especially to a lot of women, and it makes a lot of us want to have a cold shower because we feel gross. But what I learned was sales is servitude. Sales is service and sales is helping somebody find a solution to something. So I truly believe that if you sell something that genuinely helps people, you have an ethical and a moral responsibility to get that into as many hands as humanly possible. And it's just the execution on the sales that I think a lot of people aren't sure how to do. So that was my long story, the TLDR, like what did it teach me? A lot about human psychology and what motivates someone to take action because you're always selling something, whether it's your proprietary system, whether it's to download an ebook, whether it's to take up a call, even if you're a marketer, you are always selling and persuading someone to do something. 
Yeah, I'm going to poke a little bit at the misalignment between sales and marketing. I saw a horrifying stat recently that in B2B, 50% of sales and marketing teams have not agreed on their definition of a lead. Oh my. (laughs) I think some of this stems from a lack of empathy for somebody who's carrying a bag and interfacing with customers all the time. What blows my mind is when people refuse to listen to sales and take their critique at face value. And what I wish a lot more marketers would do is treat the situation as if where there's smoke, there's fire. And there's always some legitimacy in something that a salesperson is raising. The messaging isn't working. The persona's off. Something there is true. Keep working at it. What else do you think we could do to help marketing and sales align a little bit better? Yeah. And this is such an interesting topic. And I've had this conversation with quite a few other business owners who have the same, whether they're in an agency, they have the same problem with clients or they have their own company. And so when we've gone in and helped really big, even billion dollar brands like to scale, this is usually where we start. So one, it's what you said as well, is that shared language or that shared vernacular. How can you improve something if you're not even on the same page of what it is that you're trying to improve. There also is something to be said around the leadership and making sure that everyone's part of the same team. I've been guilty of it in the marketing and the fulfillment team where you get into that mentality of us versus them. Oh, the sales team, like we would call the sales te- some of the sales team's nicknames, like the crazy whisperer or because they would always sell crazy clients or like stuff like that. And it's like, as a manager, I know, right? And, and I am an ex, like, like a salesperson. And in that, in that company, I had come from sales into marketing and but it's really easy where that that cancer can breed within a company so i think that's the first thing is to stamp that out how can you do that some people recommend having a head of sales and marketing that understand both and bring the teams together but there does maybe need to be a conduit between the two but i don't have an answer to that specific thing shared language and consistent feedback loops and if you're a marketer show the sales team how you're implementing and executing on their feedback, or they're never going to give you feedback. And yes. And the other thing is ask good questions, get good answers. Don't expect the sales team are not marketers. You as a mark, a good marketer is a good detective and they ask good questions. So you should be able to go to them and, and find out what the target market's saying. The reality is most marketers have never spoken to the target market. And then they think keywords, I think, that they can go and make marketing campaigns that are going to resonate with them. And they've never spoken to this person. Your marketing is one to like, it's meant to feel one to one. It's meant to resonate with them. And your sales team is a gold mine. Now I've been on another podcast where the host says, I sound like too much of a a sales team empathizer sometimes. So on the, on the flip side, it's important for the sales team to be really plugged in, but both of them with any persuasion and human psychology, it's just what's in it for me. That's like, you just say to the sales team, I want to get you better leads. What would your life look like if the people that came to you had X, Y, Z? Tell me about the best leads you get. Tell me about your best sales. Tell me about a dream lead. What are the questions they have? And then once you get that feedback, it's the execution, right? Go put it in the FAQs. Make an awesome thank you page that congratulates future pace, talks about next steps. Put more persuasion in so you're giving your sales team higher quality leads. I probably should have warned you that was a trigger point of mine and I'm going to stop myself there because I can get into ranting mode on this topic. (laughs) No, I think we should embrace this soapbox and just run with it. (laughs) Okay, great. 
Okay, let me keep going. No, fabulous. <laughs> yeah, and I totally agree with you. I don't think you're favoring sales too much at all. I think the cooperation needs to be on both sides. The only one I kind of flinched with was the CRO that aligns across because the skill sets are so different. From marketing I, and I'd and love sales. to unpack this with you. What do you, what do you think? Like, I've heard both sides. I haven't. I'm on the fence. I haven't made up my mind. Yeah, I think there are unicorns such as yourself who have experienced both organizations mm. and can see the full perspective, but they are unicorns and rare and few and far between. What the CRO has done, in my opinion, in a lot of cases, mm. I've seen this play out, is you're introducing a tiebreaker. Mm. So the person is going to naturally gravitate towards fixing and diagnosing things that they're most familiar with. Yeah. Totally understandable human behavior, but the operations resources and investments are going to be pulled more in that direction as opposed to what's best for the organization as a mm. whole. So I would prefer that unless you're a unicorn and then absolutely, but if you're not a unicorn, let's keep the head of sales, head of marketing, and then maybe introduce an operations person who has positional power and can advocate for the business as a whole. Mm. I don't think we see enough people with an operational background sitting at the top of that organization, but that's my soapbox. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really clean way to do it. And the reality is most people don't have marketing and sales. And I think that's totally true. You're going to gravitate towards the one that you're most familiar with. And I've had not exactly this situation, but I've had leaders that might be managing multifaceted teams and the background that they come from, it's just tribal, isn't it? The background that they come from, they lean towards and they gravitate towards it because it's easy and they understand it. And I think that could pose a really big problem in a company if you had somebody sales driven trying to tell marketing what to do and vice vice versa. So yeah, I think it's unless it's unless they have experience in both, it sounds like it'd be a bit of a danger zone for the company. And I see absolute value in leaders on each side picking up skills from the other side, mm. participating in sales calls. I'm really fortunate in that I I am a part-time sales engineer mm. in the role, role I'm in. So I'm on the phone all the time with prospects and that's really informed our messaging on our website and mm. how we approach things. It's been fabulous. Not everyone has the time and inclination to do so, but if you do, there's nothing to lose by, by participating a little bit more heavily. Exactly. And to, to wrap that in a bow, I do believe that the job of marketing is to make sales superfluous, AKA, there doesn't need to be hardcore sales where your team needs to be hardcore hustle, Wolf of Wall Street banging on the chest, testosterone fist bumps. You, like if you have good marketing, when people get on the, and, and that's what we're, we're still quite small, but that's what we have. By the time someone gets on this, on a call with me, they're sold. It's just my job as the salesperson to make sure they're a good fit. And that should be the goal of your marketing is that they're sold from the marketing. And now there's like the finer details of, you know, what they want to hear versus what they need to hear and making sure that they are in fact the right avatar for the company. Absolutely. That's the grand goal is awareness, right? The more aware a company is, the more grounded they are in the offerings and guardrails around a solution the easier the conversation is with sales. Yeah, that's that's all there is. So I'm going to I'm going to throw another hot topic in the ring. Why is B2B so boring? I have this theory that in people's heads they think of B2C as really fun, sexy e-commerce, and then there's this like B2B and it's like suits and I just imagine that people think in their heads there's two 
just business buildings talking to each other and there's no people involved. Because the bizarre thing is when someone puts on their clothes for work, they're still a person and they still operate on the same hardwiring when they're making a B2C decision. And so there's something about this idea around professionalism not allowing personality and being too scared to stand out and not wanting to say something different. I also find in B2B a lot a lot of B2B businesses, are, like their definition of their target market is anybody with a pulse and a dollar in their back pocket. And so they want to be everything to everyone, which naturally leads you to being very boring. So they don't want to stand out. They copy their competition and they don't probably understand the difference between professionalism and personality. I think those are my, my top ones that come to mind. What about you? I don't know. I think there's just something stodgy about the culture that puts people off. But it's interesting. I was catching a documentary yesterday. They're digitizing a lot of the campaign commercials for Rainier Beer, which was a big beer a long time ago in the Pacific Northwest. And the way they cultivated this cult following is they completely diverged from what was normal, talking about the ingredients, this really boring, dry adult talking about the process of brewing the beer and why they were different. And they went to a more humorous <laughs> approach where they, they invented the rain beers and they'd have them running across the stream screen like a bunch of deer, wild deer. And it, it was just hilarious. Lots of really humorous, dumb, but funny commercials. And it completely revolutionized things. And I'm starting to see more of an, inject an injection of personality in B2B and I think we're going to see that tide turn because if you watch a major sporting event, there's like a competition here in the United States, the Super Bowl, who's going to make the funniest ad? A lot of times it's going to be your alcohol vendor. Of course. <laughs> but I think we're going to see, I think B2B is always a bit behind and we're starting to see a little bit more authenticity and, and personality being injected. Have you seen any good examples of that? I've seen a few, like, for example, is it Gong that sales? There's Gong, there's like Grammarly, which is kind of B2B, B2C. A lot of the, some of the, the bigger tech, VC-backed tech are really good at injecting that personality into it. But the reality is they have big budgets and they have good advisors and like, you know, most, most businesses are small, medium businesses and they're a business owner and a team of 10, 20, 50, 100 max, and they just don't know how to do that. And it's scary, right? So that's like, they're the examples like these big tech companies, but I don't see any good ones really on that SME ground. Well, yeah. And I got to tell you, I've posted a lot of humor based videos on LinkedIn and I've joked about, you know, you guys, caliber mines got to knock it out of the park because all my eggs are in one basket now. Nobody's... <laughs> But it's funny because my mentors like the wrong people won't hire you. The right people will just keep doing it. So I think there's this fear that if we embrace humor and we say the wrong thing, we're going to get canceled. Oh, and I think it's a fair concern right now with the overcorrectness, correcting of, of society and where, where we are. It's a fair concern. However, a bigger concern should be dying of obscurity. <laughs> in your business and you will if you're not polarizing. And so success leads clues and look at the the highest paid ever 
people and anything. Look at Trump, look at Howard Stern. And I'm not saying be like them. You should never copy the how. You should always unpack the why. Unpack why somebody does something and how they think about it. These people are polarizing. The biggest companies are polarizing. Why? Because it cuts through the noise and it repels the wrong people. And it like just, inc- like you have crazy followers, not fans, followers that are attracted to you because your message cuts through and talks to them and resonates with them. So there is a big thing for B2B scared to be polarizing because they don't want to rock the boat. And what they don't know is that they're so vanilla and boring that they are, people are indifferent to them. And I think that's the worst place a company can be in. I'm still having flashbacks to that documentary about the beer company because when they, when they fired the agency that was doing all the humorous ads, a bunch of people just stop buying the brand and they lost their market share. So I I think there's something to your theory for sure. Yeah. And it's not that it needs to be necessarily humor. I think that's a great way, but it's different. It's the, the idea here to unpack is to be different. If everybody's saying the same thing, what can you do differently? For example, there's a direct response ad that came out many, many moons ago uh, for beer. And the direct response marketer went in and was like, okay, wait, like, and he heard about the process and it's all very boring. All the beer companies say the same thing. And then he was really enamored by this hops process and the way that the wheat gets turned into hops. And they were like, yeah, well, everyone does that. And he was like, yeah, but nobody says this. You're all saying the same things at the moment. And so they went with this campaign about the hops and the process and the story, and it was different and it stood out. And that's just been seen time and time again in marketing campaigns. What does stand out and what is bold and what is brave and what is polarizing, you're rewarded. Will you fail? Maybe, but it's only a failure if you don't learn from it. Otherwise, it's feedback and you keep going and you keep iterating. Yeah. And I'm thinking, unfortunately, most of the examples popping into my head are B2C, but I'm thinking of um, the shoe manufacturer. Everybody was going for cheaper price points and they said, it's good for the environment. They're sustainable. And for every pair you buy, we're going to give a pair to a person at Tom's, right? Yeah. 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 You're right. People aren't always looking for cheapest anymore. They're looking for something that inspires them, pulls them in one direction, something. Yes. I believe never compete on price. If you're going to compete on price, be the most expensive. And, and serve less people. <laughs> That's like where, like to work with us, it's very expensive and the, the service and the results back it up. But if your marketing's good enough, you pre-sway people and you don't have those issues because you're attracting the right people. And that is probably the issue with a lot of marketing is they're casting such a broad net. You're bringing in those tire kickers. You're bringing in those penny pinches. When if you really spoke to who is your dream avatar, and this is a bit of a epiphany we work with clients on, we'll be like, okay, who's your customers? And I'll go, cool, but who's your dream customer? What's your 80-20 rule? Like, who do you want to, who do you want to attract more of? What should we magnify on? And then that's where like the magic happens because if you go out and you fish for whales, but you use bait that's going to pull in some other crappy fish, I obviously don't go fishing and analogy broken. But if you want to get whales right, you need whale bait. And if you go out there with like trout bait, is that a good fish? I don't know. But if you don't want trouts, don't use trout bait, use whale bait. It works. I understood what you're saying. I've obviously (laughs) been fishing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So 
touching on the 80-20 rule, love that. Would love to tie into something we kind of glazed over earlier but didn't really dig into, which is figuring out the offer. Mm. So I think all of us have the request a demo, and we're so guilty of that. But uh, a better way to attract people is to maybe offer something that they're looking for that you can provide that doesn't involve a price point. How do you go about figuring out what that is? Uh, conceptual level. Yes. Okay. Awesome. And it's not that inherently book a demo is wrong. It's the value and the positioning of the demo. And if you want to trigger me after this question, talk to me about how bad SaaS demos are and how they need to be scripted and better, but I'll stay on, on, I'll stay on topic for now. You can trigger me later. So how can people figure out, figure out their offer? So there's been many, many direct response marketers that have spoken about this. Dan Kennedy calls it the Godfather offer. Alex Homozi has brought out a hundred million dollar offers book. Listen to Dan Kennedy, go read that if you want to get deeper into this. The TLDR or the too long didn't read is this. Number one, you need to understand where they are in the buyer's journey. And that depends on the temperature of traffic and where they're coming from. So what do I mean by that? There's Eugene Schwartz's five levels of awareness, and this is the buyer's journey. Everything that happens up until they become a lead and decide to buy. Now, somebody doesn't wake up one day and go, I love a demo on this software. I'm going to go look for it. Like that doesn't happen. They start unaware. They realize they have a problem and they move through. They have these conversations in their brain. And so it's sometimes it's, it's unsexy because people chat with me about funnels and they want me to talk about tech and they want me to talk about all these crazy hacks. And I have those, but not until you have the foundations because psychology is greater than technology. And I'll tell you all of those hacks. When you show me a target avatar, that isn't three dot points about like generic information. That's when I'll talk to you about like a person about the hacks. So the buyer's journey, the conversation that you're actually entering and then understanding the three big problems. And, and I'm keeping it really brief and easy for the sake of this conversation. What are the three big problems they want to solve and how can you show that you're going to help them get closer to their dream outcome and they're going to come off better from this call and this interaction. Don't call it a salesperson, call it some sort of specialist in whatever they care about. And how, you, how can you show that they come out more valuable than what they went in? Because everybody's screening your marketing and your messaging with, so what, who cares, what's in it for me or with them? What's in it for me. And so if you're putting something out there that smells like a sales call, it sounds like a sales call, I bet it's going to taste like a sales call. And they know that it's going to get on this call with some like commission breath, desperate salesperson who's trying to hit targets. You need to shift. You need to shift the positioning of what that offer is. It's like, Hey, have a chat with one of our I don't know, like build like CRM specialists or whatever it is. Don't you sort of shift that positioning and show that it's a safe environment because a sales call is scary. A call where they get value and they're chatting and they're getting something out of it is a safe environment. So at a very high level, that's how you can start to create or reframe your offer for better, higher quality leads. Mind blown. That's perfect. So I got to trigger you. What's oh. wrong with SAS demos? heavy breathing, heart rate escalates. <laughs> so, okay. I go on a few, a few, fair few of these because the tech stack for our business and for every business is very important. Just because I said before, psychology is greater than technology. Correct. But your tech stack is part of your gross flywheel. And if there was one solution 
then there wouldn't be all of these CRMs. There wouldn't be all of these other things, right? So there's not one solution that fits. You have to go on a lot of calls. And I also have a lot of SaaS clients. And one of the biggest things is you get the lead and that's great. And a lot of people think that's where your funnel ends. The funnel is every touch point. Acquisition is just one part of it. So the next part of your SaaS funnel, and I didn't make this stuff up, guys, this is on the internet, is activation. And so that is the sale. And what I see too many SaaS brands doing is this. They leave it up to chance and how the person is feeling on the day. They do not control and optimize that demo. They do not persuade people. They do not anticipate questions. They don't have maybe a form that asks what someone's trying to fold, like what someone's trying to actually solve. They don't come prepared. They just kind of rock up. They don't set the frame. So you need to be using sales. I know I told you, don't trigger me. You need to be set, setting like the frame of these and treating them like a sales call, call it a persuasion call, but don't just rock up to a call and then start flicking through your product. Okay. Yes. I think yes, I can stop no now. No feature spewing. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I no enjoy feature, this. And I'm no feature spewing. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Like find out what problem they're trying to solve. It's feature and benefit people. Like feature and benefit. What's the benefit? What's the dream outcome? And then show them how your product gets there. Don't just, they don't care. Like I bet if you look in your stats, people only use 20% of your product anyway. People don't use the crap you're showing them. Only you're excited about that. Find out what they're trying to solve and then sell on that. Okay. I'm going to let you talk. Talking stick to you. Rent, rent end. You said it all. You said it all. (laughs) I mean, I'm just impressed. It was good. It was really good. So where can people find you online to network? So any social platform with my name, Alicia Conlon Heard, bit of a mouthful, probably in the show notes, but I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on YouTube, the TikToks, the Instagrams, and a lot of this information we give for free our YouTube videos. Well, like a lot of our content journey is new. We're ramping it up and we give all of this for free. We, we genuinely are on a mission to help good businesses that have good products, good services that help other people to reach more people. Too many businesses die. They die. They fail because they don't know sales and marketing. And we're so passionate about changing that. And I think too many people go out there with shiny objects because they just want to make money and they just go out and they want to sell you something crazy new that sounds sexy. I have more of a no BS reality check <laughs> to it because the, the the honest answer is like I live in the real world and if marketing and sales and business was easy, we'd all be doing it. We'd all be in the Bahamas, cheesing our mojitos, thinking about how easy it is to sell to people online. So you can find me on LinkedIn, YouTube, and our website is persuasionexperience.com. If you would like me to give you an unfiltered opinion about your funnel or website. You speak directly with myself or my co-founder. No sales dude bros, I promise. And I'll make sure you leave with value. I'll practice what I preach. (laughs) Follow, visit, subscribe. This this gal has it figured out and you're headed towards mojito heaven. So I I just (laughs) love love this. This is great. So thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. For those of you listening who've enjoyed, please tell two friends, rate, review, subscribe. It does make a difference. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com.